So as I said in the beginning on the service, good things do uh, come to those who wait, um, especially when uh, those who wait are Christians believing in God's good promises. Ask David, uh, the promise to David that God made him through Samuel. You remember when David was just a freckle-faced teenager, maybe 16 or 17 back in those days, has now fully come to pass uh, 20 years after that promise. You remember that the Lord told Samuel after serving King Saul, his pink slip, told him that his services were no longer required because of his constant disobedience and rebellion and lack of faith he gets fired and the lord says to samuel i'm sending you to jesse uh, of bethlehem i've chosen one of his sons to be king and you recall that fateful barbecue that evening there and that's really what it was uh, seven sons passed by the famous prophet you remember that and then all seven passed by and the lord's like no none of these and so he says uh are there any other sons i don't know about and they say oh yeah david he's that 16 year old out in the sheep field um and in comes this fresh-faced teenage giant slayer with a with the wonderful light of heaven in his eyes then the lord said rise and anoint him he is the one so Samuel took the oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. In the Hebrew, it's the spirit of the Lord rushed in upon him. Now, uh, from that time, a promise was made. Uh, uh, a dream was born in his heart. David's heart, but life kind of went on, business as usual. Uh, David had been anointed. That word means that he was Christ-did. He was Messiah-ed. He was the chosen vessel of God's deliverance and to be the king over uh, Israel. And the power of God was all over him, but it seemed like uh, life just got in the way. And 20 long years now after that, it's finally realized as God molded and shaped uh, David into the man of God that he wanted him to be. God didn't waste any of that 20 years. We're always thinking, you know, it's taking God so long to bring this thing to pass. And we're feeling every last second of it. But God is not wasting one second. He's aligning things in their proper places. He's molding you. He's preparing you. If you get to that place unprepared, it will not be a blessing. It will not be a blessing. So we need to wait and trust. But what a glorious day it was and must have been. We read about it last week. So verses 1 through 5 will just uh, uh, refresh our memories here. All the tribes of Israel now, you'll remember only the tribe of Judah, seven and a half years previous to this reading, had made David king, king only of Judah. And the other 11 tribes dragging their feet, causing problems, but now they all come together. So all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, 
You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all of the elders had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them, an agreement, a contract almost, at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel again. So this is the third time. The first time with Samuel, the second time with Judah, and now the third time fully realized king over the whole 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king of Judah, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven, and a, seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel in Judah 33 years. So for a total of 40 years, he was king until he was 70 years old. So why don't we pause there? You know, last week we got to it basically, honestly, because I didn't want to end the night with uh, guys with uh, cut off hands and feet. Uh, it was kind of a downer. And so we just turned the page and just read, see, now he's king. Oh, happy day. Uh, but so there is a message in this little paragraph. We, we are, Lord willing, going to get to the whole chapter. But I do want you to see some really interesting things about how Israel, the 11 tribes, Anyway, come and, and make their case for David to now rule over them. Now, uh, first of all, so our first point would be God keeps his promises. Now, when the Israelites were dividing up the promised land uh, after they pretty much subdued it, and they were kind of allotting out the inheritance to all the tribes, uh, the Holy Spirit gives this summary in Joshua 21. Let me read it to you. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them the rest, gave them rest rather on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the, the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. It didn't matter how many Canaanites were in the land. It didn't matter the, their size. They were, some of them were just monstrous in size. Uh, it didn't matter the Canaanites' military power. It didn't matter how tall the walls of Jericho were. It didn't matter how uncrossable the Jordan River at flood stage was. It didn't matter how weak the Israelites were. Uh, God had made some promises, and not one of all the Lord's good promises would fail. Everyone was fulfilled. Ask Abraham. The Lord made a promise to him. And 25 years later, his barren wife conceived. Here's how Romans 4 put it. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. She was barren all her life. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. The only thing that matters, 
is, does God want to do it? Did he say he would do it? Did he make a promise? Then, my friend, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who said, with God, all things are possible. So here, too, with David, it didn't matter that King Saul wasn't going to budge. Yeah, he got a pink slip, but he said, no, I'm not leaving. You know, and, and I've got the army. Well, what's David supposed to do or think for that matter? It didn't matter that uh, Saul soured the nation against David with lots of lies and slander and all kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, it didn't matter that Saul was trying to kill him at every turn with his spears and all of that. Through ups and downs, twists and turns, he's 37 and a half years old. And the promise comes to pass. And how did he do it? Waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring. So uh, David never strong arms it. So the first thing I want you to see in this opening paragraph is that they come to him. And they're going to argue a case for him to be king. And he's, they're going to argue the very things that David himself could, be, ha- could have been arguing for the last 20 years. To them. So it's very interesting because David said, I will never strong arm this to happen. God has given me a promise. If it is the Lord, he will bring it to pass. He doesn't need my help. That doesn't mean we don't cooperate when the Lord is leading us. It just means we don't manipulate things to get what we want. He was always kind of loose-handed about his destiny in the Lord and made sure so that the time when he sat on that throne, he'd never have to second-guess and say, did I do this? Did I just want this so bad that I just made it happen? And at every opportunity, when David had the possibility to kind of move in his own human understanding and use his own human logic to make it happen, he didn't do it. It was just beautiful the way he just waited and trusted uh, on the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6 says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to this very end in order um, that you make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, listen, through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That's Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11. Faith and patience, you inherit what has been promised to you. So, so before we hit the rest of the chapter and see what's going on in David's opening moments of his reign, uh, like I said, a couple of very interesting thing, uh, things. I'd like you to see David's gracious spirit in light of Israel's fickle character. Okay, so in verse 1, here come the elders, right? The 11 representatives of the holdout tribes that have been dragging their heels the last seven and a half years. So here's how we see it, they say. They're coming to David. Three good reasons you should be King David. Number one, in verse one, uh, we're your own flesh and blood. Now, they're saying more than we're just biologically related. They're saying, hey, we are heirs together, brothers, uh, whose father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are heirs together in God's promises. Now, here's the challenge for David. He has to act 
like he's like like he's never thought of these things before. All right. Because they're coming to to him with things that he's probably been saying for 20 years. And so they suddenly have seen the light. And even though they've been the problem, they're going to come now preach a sermon, a three point sermon on why you really should be king. And and David has to kind of be like, um, OK, you know, but there's there's grace. He he's not sour. He's not bitter. He hasn't he's not holding grudges. He has agape love. He's merciful. He's gracious. It's just w- wonderful to see. You know, so uh, this is coming from the tribes who uh, kind of shared in hunting down their brothers for 20 years and dragging their feet the last seven and a half years. I can hear David saying, oh, we're all brothers in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell that to my sister whose son you killed. Asahel is his nephew, his sister's son. You know, he doesn't say that. He listens and he lets them talk. He receives them graciously. Uh, The temptation is, of course, uh, to to say, you know what, guys, don't talk to me about brotherly love. All right. You've made my life a living hell for 20 years. All right. So now you're coming with a sermon about brotherly love, please. Please. Yeah, but he doesn't do that. Now, I would do that. But, I I mean, that's the first thing I'm thinking. I'm getting angry reading this, going, oh, excuse me, now a sermon on brotherly love. Number one, we're brothers. Can't we just all get along? Yeah. We've been thinking this for like two decades, buddy. All right. So, uh, number two and verse two, uh, they say, you've got what we need. That's their second point. Uh, Let me paraphrase. In the past, when Saul was king, you were the actual power. You were the hero. You were the military might that kept us all safe from the bad guys. You remember the song, David? Saul Saul killed his thousands, but you, you're tens of thousands. Hmm. Now, if that, that were me... I would be thinking something like, oh, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. You all need my help. How convenient. Abner, your war hero, is dead. Ish-shobeth, your king, was weak anyway, but he's dead. Who else is going to protect you? And now you're thinking, you know what? We know somebody. We remember a song. Somebody's really good with the Philistines. And it went something like he could wipe out 10,000 of them. Just the kind of guy that we could use. Oh, so now, after only Abner's gone and you have no other recourses, it's only what you want. You know, I have something that you need and you feel vulnerable and threatened. So now, oh, here you are with your three-point sermon. See, am I not good at this? I mean, uh, that's how I would be letting him have it. But you know what? Um, uh, That's not right. So (laughs) the final of their three-point sermon, and they say, and with this we close, they're saying, now, why you, David, should become the one we've prevented you from becoming all these years? Number (laughs) number three is uh, it's God's will. Duh. Uh, uh, this is their P.S. de resistance. Now, that means their big ticket item. All right. Now, I've been wanting to see if I could use that in a sentence publicly for a long time. <laughs> and I did. And uh, so what? There we go. <laughs> wow. Hallelujah. All right. Moving on. Uh, so 
here's what they're saying. Now they say, hey, and by the way, number three, the reason you should be the king that, that God wanted you to be for the last 20 years, even though we've stopped you from that, is number three, is that God promised you, remember? I mean, and let me paraphrase verse two. Isn't this the Lord's will? He told you that you'd shepherd his people Israel and that you would be their prince. He promised you'd be the one, so let's do this. Now, I imagine David saying, he did? <laughs> oh, he did? Uh, uh, gee whiz, if, if he did tell me that, I, I'm just wondering why it could have taken so long to come to pass. All right, I can hear them saying, come on, man, where's your faith, David? The Lord spoke to you, right? Why hasn't it happened yet? God told you a long time ago. And by the way, uh, we knew that too. Oh, whoops. <laughs> uh, yeah, they just outed themselves. You know what? They should have taken the fifth. They shouldn't have come. They shouldn't have come and said, yeah, the Lord told you a long time ago that, that you were going to be king. Oh, oh, did, oh, yeah, we knew that too. Yeah, we knew what God's will was. But we weren't going to cooperate with it because we have our own little reasons. So interesting choice of words. Yeah, the Lord told David through Samuel that he was going to be king. Uh, but Samuel spoke to Israel. All of Israel knew. When Goliath came down like that with a 16, 17-year-old kid with a slingshot, they knew. They were all saying it. The brothers knew. Samuel knew, Israel knew, Saul knew. Let me quote Saul. Saul says, uh, uh, I know that you will surely be king, Saul, to David. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. First Samuel 24. Everybody knew. But what they don't say, they don't say. And by the way, like the Lord told us, ah, uh, like the Lord told you, because we're not going to take responsibility, even though we did know. We're going to just change that little pronoun to make it sound a little bit more like it's your problem. He told you personally, right? So we didn't really know. Uh, people who have caused a lot of trouble and then see the light usually just want to go forward with the least amount of humbling and confession as possible. Now, I've rewritten the chapter a little bit, and this is how it should have happened, all right? Uh, here's, here's what they should have said. David, here are three painful reminders of how we've blown it the last two decades. Uh, the facts were very plain to us all, but we just didn't want to obey. After all, we are Jews, we are stiff-necked, and that's sort of our job description. <laughs> Number one. This is them speaking in a perfect world, written by Ross Reinman. <laughs> number one, number one, King David, we ignored the fact that we Israelites are all brothers, sharing in the promises of our forefathers in our wonderful heritage together. Instead of that, we've caused division, hardened our hearts, caused war among us that killed our brothers. Number two, oh, great King David, we knew full well God was using you when the giants were falling and the Philistines were running and God's power and wisdom was all over you that we should have removed Saul and crowned you the rightful king. But we were too weak for that. We're sorry. Number three, 
we fully realized what the Lord wanted. He had spoken not only to you, but to Samuel, to Saul, and to all Israel, what his will was concerning you. But we, as usual, resisted. We dragged our feet, turned a blind eye, went with the flow, and by doing so caused you pain and suffering and caused hardship for Israel and even the loss of life. We humbly, therefore... <laughs> Acknowledge the truth, accept our responsibility in the matter, and ask your forgiveness and the forgiveness of our merciful God. Please accept our humble apologies and reign over us. Like that's going to happen. That's not going to happen. David has the grace to receive the efforts of the offending party, no matter how lame, meager, and broken it is. That's grace. Grace doesn't take somebody's nose and rubs it uh, in their mistakes. It does, grace doesn't uh, just kind of take out a list. The prodigal doesn't come home to a father who wants to put him on probation and say, you know what, did you say you were sorry to your mom? Did you, uh, uh, you know what, I think you're just here because you're, you were hungry. Which is true. He was hungry and he came back. His father just slathered him with love and kisses. It's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, this is what's in David's heart. He doesn't, he doesn't hear anything that we're saying about this, even though it's true. He, he expects the, uh, the best of them. You know, listen, he's able to receive their broken attempt at getting right. You know, they just want to go forward. Let's just do it right. And David doesn't need to say, well, who was right and who was wrong and a blah, blah, blah. You guys need to take responsibility. None of that. Grace extending it doesn't come natural. We all want it shown to us, but we're very reluctant to show it to others. Uh, a wife. My husband doesn't tell me often enough that he loves and appreciates me. Does he show you? Uh, does your husband work hard to provide whatever you want and need? Y you know, but he doesn't read the Bible to me or, or uh, speak French and uh, cook me dinner. Uh, uh, is he a good dad? Is he honest and hardworking? Is he faithful? Come on, ladies. Seriously. Accept what he can give you. Gentlemen, my wife doesn't show me the kind of love or express her love for me in the way that I need it. Does she do your dirty laundry? Has she raised your children? Does she cook your meals? Does she try in her way to the best of her ability to make your life easier and a blessing to you? Everybody is broken Nobody is trying uh, husband and wife unless they have psychological problems or they're evil. No, no, none of them are trying to really upset you and not give you what you really want. They are broken. So I had a Christian counselor 30 years ago 
help me get over my unforgiveness for my father. It was very, very cold and very unloving and very violent. And um, he said, did your dad ever did you say that he loved you? Never. I don't have one memory. Was he affectionate at all? No, not really. I don't have a memory. Um, did he do anything good or nice? Yeah, he'd always buy me stuff. He bought me whatever I wanted. And anything I said at Christmas or on my birthday, my dad would get it. And if I ever had needed any money, he'd just give it to me right away. And he said, you know what? That was your dad's way of saying, I love you, but I'm really broken. And broken in these other areas. How was his dad to him? Terrible. His dad was terribly abusive. My grandfather was terribly abusive to my father. He didn't show him any love. So my father was broken. But my father had a way of trying to say, I'm sorry, I love you, I believe in you, but this is how I do it. I work really hard, and I give you stuff. And, I, and, and the therapist said, could that just be enough for you? Let him in his brokenness express his love to you instead of you saying, ah, that's not what I wanted. I don't want the gifts. I don't want the money. I just want to love you. Well, you know what? He's not capable of giving it to you. Why don't you just take in grace what he is capable of giving? Husband, wife, dad. That's called grace. And yeah, you want it, but you don't want to extend it. And the Lord said, you know what? That's not going to work that way. You all want to be forgiven of a lifetime of sins, and you won't extend a little bit of, of grace and forgiveness to the one you should the most to. Somebody close like that. All right, let's move on. Does somebody just want to move forward, and they don't want to go over every little detail about who was right and who was wrong. Is that okay with you? Or are you going to pull out a piece of paper and want every I dotted and every T crossed? I feel sorry for you because you're, you're messing up a great opportunity to go forward with the person who said, you know, we've had some difficulties. Can we just move forward? No, I want, I, I want you to admit every last thing. Forget about it. They're, they're already out the door. They're gone. You missed the window of opportunity. Uh, so David's receptive. David's graciously receiving the imperfect uh, little invitation to be their king. Uh, sweet release, liberating forgiveness. And Israel's known the truth. I do want to ask the question, um, since they knew the truth, you know, why did they resist it for so long? It's really what our sinful nature does. Here's a Romans chapter 1. Men suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. Men who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Why? Because they like the lie better. Now, so the hardest hearted atheist, PhD evolutionist knows because he bears the image of God. The Bible says he knows. The church 
people know and unchurched people know because the moral laws are written on our hearts as human beings. Christians and non-Christians, everyone know God has made it plain. We drag our feet. We prefer to lie until God intervenes, does his work, takes away our Saul's, our Abner's, and forces us to come to the knowledge of his truth and yield our wills to do it. And so that's what was going on there. God had to intervene. And uh, oftentimes when we get off track and we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, uh, the only way back is for God to intervene and to close all the doors to our false ways. And when we do that, we come back and God is so gracious. So uh, there's a celebration. There's a crowning of the king. And the, uh, but the joy is kind of short lived because there's work to do. Uh, after the coronation and the inauguration, uh, King David doesn't take an, a golf vacation. Um, or should I say another golf vacation uh, after <laughs> you guys need to watch the news more often then you know what I was trying to say uh, after the coronation it was time to go after the enemy and pursue the uh, Israel's best interests so 6 through 16 so he's crowned king. Now the king and his men marched to Jerusalem, first order of business, to attack the Jebusites who live there. The Jebusites said to David, you'll not get in here. Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. <laughs> well, apparently. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, and no one knows where that word came from except that they called that hill Zion. And he renamed it the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those, quote, lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages, messengers rather, to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there, Shamua, Shobab. Now, if you're pregnant and looking for a baby name, uh, keep moving. All right, now we got number three. Nathan is related to Mary. Nathan is, is blood from David to Nathan to Mary. Solomon. Solomon, it goes David, Solomon to Joseph. Just so you know. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. There we go. 
And next time he has kids, if he could just do, do, make them a little less difficult to pronounce, that would be nice. All right, so number one, we saw uh, God kept his promises. Now number two, David keeps his. David knows the law. They have the law. That is the writing of Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 19. The king must learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of God's law. Now, David, first uh, order of business is king. He wants to be a man after God's own heart. He is by nature that way. He's going to obey what the Lord has already said. And he realizes, David realizes, you know what? Why don't we start this administration by obeying what we haven't done for 500 years when the Lord brought them into the promised land, he said, I'm judging these people. I, they're very evil and wicked. I've worked with them for 400 years. Now I want you to inherit this land. But they never took out the Jebusites. 500 years of extended grace to them. David says, let's start this new kingdom right by, by doing what God has asked us to do. It's 500 years late, but you know better late than never. And so he's going to do that. And uh, now we're going to have the introduction to Jerusalem the very first time. 800 times it's mentioned in the Bible. It will be the capital of the world. It's 12 acres big right now. It's just a pile of, uh, just a pile of dirt. And uh, the Lord will say, this will be a cup of trembling to the nations. It's, a, it's got a big destiny, of course. So let's uh, start by obeying the Lord. So the Jebusites you see in verse 6 catch wind of David's intention. And they taunt David and his men. And they say, seriously? Uh, even the blind and lame could uh, defend us from you. Uh, you'll never get in here. Now, there's a good proverb for this. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, Jerusalem was on a hill and is on a hill to this day, well insulated, um, a natural fortress, and it had a wall around it. And now how differently if they had these Jebusites had a little faith, humility, and fear of the Lord. How about they said this? King David, we heard that you're coming after us and we already, we get it. Listen, uh, we've escaped judgment from your Lord for 500 years, uh, longer than our Canaanite brothers. Uh, have mercy on us. Let us find our place in Israel's kingdom as your humble servants, as, as believers in Yahweh. You would have read something totally different. But instead, they come out and say, you can't get us. Neener, neener, neener. You know, that wasn't smart to do. Now, now, now verse 6 uh, their self-designation, they call themselves the lame and blind. So that sticks, and David uh, figures out if anybody's going to get in there, they've got to go up a water shaft, which fed uh, the city of Jerusalem with water. Now, believe it or not, uh, that is called Warren's Tunnel, because a man with the last name of Warren discovered it. And 49 feet long, a narrow vertical shaft... We'll see it when we visit um, Jerusalem in May. Um, so up David's men go through that 
very tight plays. So it's something I would opt out of because I don't do tight places. So now you know three things about me with frogs and snakes and tight places. And then if you combine them all, I would just go home to be with the Lord. <laughs> now, uh, up the guys go through that chute and down the city comes and verse 8 says by the way the Lord, uh, David says now that it's going to be my house and it is going to be his house because the palace goes there uh, he says the blind and the, the, blind and the lame uh, will not be coming over for dinner now verse 9 as was the ancient custom when you conquered a city you renamed it you could name it after yourself if you wanted so he said, hey, that's a good idea, City of David. So thus it is called that. I think that's the idea maybe behind Cottingtown. Because <laughs> 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 they just conquered that little area and put up a mall. All right. Did you know uh, the Philippines? Did you know that that was because King Philip II of Spain went over and took it over? And to this day, it's named after him. Philippines, wow. I mean, there's a whole host of that. So Jerusalem's crazy small, 12 acres, like I said. And it, and it says he, he builds it up. He starts to expand. And the Lord is making him stronger and stronger. It's so encouraging. Zechariah 4 and verse 10. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. God's like that in our lives. The baby in a manger to the great God and Savior. Let there be light. And in just a few days, there's a fully functioning universe. Let's start small. God always starts small. This church, you know, there were 700 people at our, our, our anniversary that 10-year anniversary, I told you that. But it started with a thought. It started with no money. It started with 20 chairs from Costco. God, don't get discouraged. Whatever it is that he's put doing in your life, he likes to start with 20 chairs uh, or less, you know, with one chair. That's how he is. And so he takes 12 acres of dirt, and he's going to turn it into the well-watered garden of paradise, world capital of the entire millennial kingdom. Twelve acres, not much there when you first looked at it. But uh, that's Jerusalem. Verse 11, the Gentile king Hiram reaches out to David. You know, two things. Hiram's kind of grateful because he doesn't like the Philistines either. And, and Hiram's smart. He knows that David uh, is strong and the Lord is with him and he doesn't want to mess around. So he sends him a nice message, says, congratulations, you're the king, finally, and uh, sends cedar wood and craftsmen uh, to build him a palace. Don't let verse 12 slip by you. Uh, David knows what all good leaders, whether you're leading in your house or you're at work or in the church, he knew that God had called him, verse 12. He knew that it was about the Lord's cause and kingdom, not his. And thirdly, he knew it was about God's people and not him. They didn't exist to bless him. He existed to bless them. That's the way God's kingdom works. 
And so verse 13, sadly, speaking of David's house, is a good place to say uh, that was expanding as well with wives and kids. David disobeyed Deuteronomy 17, 17 and brought chaos by doing things the way the world did it. And uh, those uh, families were not very blessed. And so finally, let's finish up uh, the whole chapter. So we've seen God keeps his promises, one. David keeps his promises, too. And now we're going to see the Philistines keep their promises as well. All right, 17 to the end of the chapter. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, go, for I surely will hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came again, spread out over the same valley. So David inquired of the Lord again. He, and the Lord answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound, listen, listen to this. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way. So number three now, uh, God's not the only one who keeps his promises and vows. Uh, the enemy has got a few vows of his own, and he's relentless. Here's a theological truth and a spiritual law. When God advances... The enemy counters. Now, you've noticed that, right? You've had a spiritual breakthrough or one or two, or uh, you ministered to somebody, you encouraged somebody, you have a testimony that you share, uh, you start to get consistent, you have a little epiphany, and man, things are different and going so well, and then suddenly, the enemy pushes back. Now, if I baptized you, uh, you may remember what I whispered in your ear. Nine times out of ten, I say the same thing over the last 30 years after we talk and pray about baptism and whatever's going on in your life. <clears throat> then I always say, heads up. Jesus was baptized and took a stand and said, here I am. I'm in this. I, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm going to be their sin bearer. I'm going to identify with them. Here I am, Israel. And right afterwards, the devil came calling to, to take him out. And it's a pattern. You stand up and you're being used and God's doing a wonderful work in your heart and life. You can be sure that the enemy sees and comes. So, so here's David. 20 years, man, here I am, and, and, and I've got the dream, and, and suddenly, here's what verse 17 says. Uh, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king, oh, there's the, there's the thing, the work of God, 
they went up in, quote, full force to search for him. First Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around searching like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So suddenly, you know what? I, I see this all the time. Somebody's doing really good, and then suddenly old friends appear out of nowhere. Oh, Facebook is such a, such a terrible mode of the devil's use of reintroducing people who shouldn't be reintroduced. Amen? There's a statistic out there. It's terrible. Uh, how many old flames from high school? Oh, hi. Hey, I found you. Hey, yeah. So how's it going? Well, you know. Right? Terrible. All right. Uh, old flames, old foes resurface, old favorite sins. You just have to be careful. So uh, verse 17, it's a no-brainer. David, listen to this. He senses danger. So he takes defensive action and he goes down to the stronghold. Verse 17. Now, Proverbs 22.3, I love this. A prudent man sees danger coming, and he takes refuge. But the simple keep going and suffer for it. Now, lots of God's children are not very smart. They're not, and I don't mean anybody in here. I mean out in the world, God's children, and who attend other various and sundry churches. Now, listen... Uh, they're not so smart because they sense danger all the time. And what do they do about it? They don't go to the stronghold. They don't get in a safe place. They don't cry out for help. They don't tell anybody. They don't go to the cross for prayer. They don't start searching the scriptures. They don't talk to a trusted friend. They don't go to their pastor. They don't up the time in church. They isolate. They sense it. The Holy Spirit shows them. They see it coming and they keep going and they suffer. Now, you know what? I told you about the hermit crabs on the beach that I was walking down the beach one day. It was in Ensenada. And along the rocks were a bunch of hermit crabs. They lined the whole place. And, and as I'm walking, I notice them, and I'm interested in them, and I want to see them. But every time I took a couple steps, they disappear. Now, I was thinking, how smart are they? How big are their brains? They're, they're not very big. They can't be very big, right? Because the whole body's like this, so therefore the brain must be even smaller, right? So I'm thinking, now, now I'm fascinated. So the first wave goes, and so I, I walk further, and I see them, and they're all out, and I'm thinking, how close could I get without them all going, you know, not very how, how? What did they have? Like drones flying over? I don't know. Do they have radar? How do they? How smart can you be? How are they sensing that? So I'm trying to tiptoe in the sand. No, no, no. It doesn't work. They're gone. Because you, you know why? They're smart. They're smarter than human beings. They, they are smarter than human beings. Why? They're in their little hermit-like brain. It says danger. It says danger, and they go to the strongholds. Do you know how many times in a Christian's life the Holy Spirit says, screaming, danger? And they go, just go on straight, nothing, no change, no strongholds, no nothing. 
David's not dumb. He senses danger and he goes to the stronghold. Rule number one, get to a safe place, get safe. Rule number two, he asks the Lord, should I go confront him head on? Verse 19, the answer comes, yes, it's a done deal. Boom, he does it. God comes through. Round two, verse 22, same enemy, not very much time has gone by, and same battlefield, same everything. Now, you would be tempted to just say, well, uh, you know, I already asked, and God already told me, and it's the same people, same battlefield, same kind of, it's only past a few days, all going to just go straight like that. But no, David has a love relationship with God, and he understands, I need fresh New insight from this living relationship that I have with God. After all, you know what? The, the manna. Remember the manna they collected from heaven? Uh, you couldn't keep it at night. In fact, if you kept it, Exodus 16, verse 4, it, it would it turn into maggots. And it would be foul. Because God wanted them to get up every morning and get the fresh a uh, word from heaven that sustains them. That's the, the spiritual significance there. So God, God really appreciates it. You know, God, I know I just asked you and it's kind of similar, but is, it, is this the same deal? Should I, should I go forward with this? Just like last time. And he goes, thank you for asking. No, this one won't work this way. You have to go around this time. And this time I want you to, I'm going to teach you something. When you hear footsteps like marching up above you, the trees, you're going to know that's me. And then I want you to strike fast so that he associates when I sense the Lord is stirring something up and I just discern the Lord's ear. I'm going to act quickly. That's the lesson there that God wants to teach him there. Um, just... A wonderful uh, lesson that the Lord wants to honor. Uh, Adam Clark, he was born in 1762, this commentator, British Methodist Bible scholar. Here's what he says. Uh, he was marveling that David could ask and get such de details. Well, no, don't go straight. Go around to the uh, balsam trees and you'll hear this sound. And then I want you to strike quickly. And, and he's like, wow, that's amazing. And here's what he says. This is from the late, uh, the early 1800s. How is it that such supernatural guidance of God is not seen these days? Because they are not asked for. And they are not asked for because they are not expected. And they are not expected because men have very little faith. And they have weak faith because most live under the influence of secular society instead of the influence that comes from the intimate communion with their maker. So some would say, you know, by the way, that, that's just a 10 for me. Because we all want fast answers, but we don't want the price of the investment and the discipline it takes to seek the Lord. We want him to direct us, all right. So just uh, what a wonderful and intriguing and beautiful response. He says, when you, when you hear this sound like marching feet at the top of the trees. Who's marching at the top of the trees? His angels who are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. He says, so when, uh, here's what he's saying. In other words, uh, 
I love what David Guzik said, and then I'm closing, all right? Uh, there's something wonderful about the King James Version translation of this verse. When thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself. So when you hear the work of God happening, bestir thyself. Advance quickly. So Spurgeon likened, liked to point out that it said, bestir thyself. Often we want to stir up other people. But that, that often just becomes hype and emotionalism. Instead, he says, sir, stir yourself up. And then this last paragraph, I loved it. When we see the work of God happening around us, it is like the sound in the balsam trees. The rustling sound should awaken us to prayer, to devotion. A time of crisis or a tragedy is also like that sound in the mulberry trees. The rustling sound that God is at work. He's doing something. He wants our attention. He's, at, he's doing something should awaken us to confession and repentance and spiritual disciplines. Now what should I do? I hear your voice. You're working. You've, you've got my attention. The first thing I will do is this. I will bestir myself. But how shall I do it? Well, I'll go home this day, Spurgeon says, and I'll wrestle it out in prayer. You know, God lets every Christian know when something's up. And you all, we all have a different way of knowing God is speaking to me. Uh, a friend may be wandering away and deceived, or a child is on the edge of disaster, or you see a Christian taking steps that are going to land them in trouble, or your own besetting sin, and your conscience is saying, man, this is getting the upper hand. You better make a move. And God has opened a door maybe for ministry, and, and you find yourself in a providential way like, wow, Look at, look at the opportunity. God, God wants me to step into this thing or serve or, or, or speak or whatever it is. We say, listen, strike, strike while the iron's hot. When God has got that thing happening and you're like, this is a window of opportunity. It may not pass. I believe that the devil's half of his strategy is that when God is stirring the waters and you're, you're aware something's up, He's trying to do something here. I've got like an opportunity. The devil's strategy is to just distract you long enough so that that opportunity will pass and that opportunity does pass. Uh, he brings others around, but that same opportunity, that relationship, that, that green light to say or to do or to, to, to accept or to reject or whatever God is saying, that won't, you may never see that again. Strike while the iron is hot means when, you're, when you got the tears, when you get the feelings, when the sermon says, when you come up and say to the pastor, oh, it felt like you had my diary open and you were reading every page, and, and strike then. Don't wait until Tuesday when God says to you in, the, in a sermon and you have a thought, you know what? I think I should. Make sure you do it, because in 24 hours and 48 hours, the, the rustling, it's gone. The tears, the emotions, the warmth, the opportunity, practically, sometimes, is over, 
and past. When God stirs and is working, man, he's a living God. He's alive today. You have a dynamic life and things are happening all around you right now. You have to be listening for that rustling move of the spirit and and act. Or you're going to forfeit the time. I got that rustling once or twice. (laughs) He, He works with us all in different ways. But I, I felt like I should leave the church I was at and start a new work. And I went to a, a conference, and I took the pastor who's famous, John Corson. He's famous in Calvary Chapel circles. And uh, I waited in line to talk to him at Mount Hermon. And I said, I'm all stirred up. I don't fit at my old church. My kids are 11, 13, and 15. I don't have any money. I just got out of the hospital with a bone marrow transplant. I don't even know if I'm cured all the way. But the door's opening to start a church. And I just don't know. Should I? I don't know what to do. And he said, strike now. He said, when will it be the right time for you to start a church? And I said, that's a good point. (laughs) You know, when will it ever be when you know I'm going to wait until this I'm going to wait until that I'm going to wait you're going to wait you're going to wait you're going to wait and there goes the opportunity that was a real deciding factor God was stirring something up I got a confirmation through someone I really respect and and struck and it worked (laughs) apparently (laughs) it was the right thing to do when God's stirring you up strike fast That's what he said to do to David. David did it, and David was blessed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love, your patience with all of us. We're so broken. We are so depraved and so lost and so pathetic without you. But with you, Lord, we are new creations in Christ, your dearly beloved children, elect of God, Uh, co-heirs with Christ. And so, Father, help us to live with the knowledge and understanding of who we are in you and how desperate we are for that wonderful grace. In Jesus' name, amen.